The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. I'm here with Tom Dobbins and Mark Quisha, and we're talking about what's going on in the world around us from our perspective of our Catholic social teaching. As we kind of are in this post-Christmas season, this is one of those times of the years, depending on where you are in, in the Northeast, which can be a little bit dreary, a little bit cold, um, you know, sometimes cold with a little bit of precipitation. Um, northeast, these past couple of years, not much snow, uh, more rain than snow. We haven't gotten anything to speak of, a few dustings. Um, and from my perspective, I don't like that. Now, I know that if people have driveways, they have that. And, you know, God forbids, oftentimes uh, snow and blizzards do take lives and we don't want that. So um, maybe it's a blessing from that point of view. But but I do think um, making snow people, um, I think kids playing in the snow, I think sleigh riding, all of those things are just wonderful, wonderful parts of winter, which, gee, we haven't had a whole lot of recent recently. Hey, Tom, from mm -hmm. your perspective, what are, you, what are some of your recollections when you were growing up of snow, playing in the snow, et cetera? Oh, Missy, well, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, we lived in the Bronx. And uh, and so, you know, I didn't have the experience of of, of snow like that, you know, almost like those Christmas card things, you know, we kind of used to play out in the backyard and, you know, and we would have that. But when I moved to Westchester, you know, I remember it was a very snowy period. It would have been the 80s. And we used to get a lot of, like you mentioned, big snowstorms. So I remember I loved the way it looked. But the funny thing was, because as a kid from the Bronx, you mentioned shoveling snow. You know, if you live in the city, that's not a phenomenon you remember. So I remember shoveling the snow when I first moved there. And I thought, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> My yep. father's like, you have to go shovel the whole driveway. And I thought, this isn't what they promised me. So I do remember that. <laughs> yep. Uh, now, again, I, 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 I want to take very seriously that there are parts of the country which have been deluged mm -hmm. with, with snow and that has been a very, very difficult thing for people in those areas. And as I said before, sometimes it even results in in deaths. And that is not a good, yeah. good thing. So, um, you know, so, you know, God, here's what I want. I want some decent snow. But don't make it so bad that people are suffering a whole lot. Don't make anybody die. But I want enough snow where we can <laughs> kind of enjoy it a little bit go out in it, appreciate it. And um, well, the other thing, which I think is kind of fun if you're in in the city and you can do it any place, but it's kind of fun to be inside and looking out at it. Mm -hmm. So you're nice and warm and looking out at the snow coming down. And I know what people are going to say is, yeah, but, but, you know, the next day it begins to get dirty and whatever, mm -hmm. but I'll take the day or so when it's nice you know, and then we'll put it. Now, my ideal thing 
if I'm talking to God, here's what I want. I want a big, big snowstorm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, I want the weather to go up to 40 degrees or so and some rain. Yes. So that we get rid of the snow quickly. <laughs> and then next week, we can do it over again. I so, like that one, Sierra. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. It doesn't always happen that day. Sometimes it gets very cold. And then you got to worry about the ice and walking and stuff like that. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it how it works out. So anyway, Tom, so Catholic School Week is coming up, isn't it? Yes, it is. In fact, Catholic School Week starts uh, this Sunday and runs all the way through the beginning of February. Tom, you went to Catholic school, didn't you? I did. I did. I went uh, to all, all the way through Catholic school up until uh, college, uh, frankly. And then I went to Catholic universities. I went to uh, St. Gabriel's in Riverdale. Then I went okay. to Our Lady Perpetual Help in Pelham Manor. And then I went to Iona Prep High School in New Rochelle. So okay. I had... Uh, I had all those all those Catholic schools on my way to college. <laughs> great, great. Um, I went to um, yeah, I went to school in Yonkers, St. John the Baptist School. So why don't we go to our first guest, who is Linda Doherty, who is um, the associate superintendent for Catholic identity in the school department of the Archdiocese of New York. I'm delighted that we are able to speak with her about uh, Catholic schools in the Archdiocese, and I'm sure with her experience, we can talk about Catholic schools throughout the country. Linda Doherty, thank you for taking the time this morning to be with us on Just Love. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be a part of this great broadcast. Wonderful. So, so Linda, um, tell us a little bit about Catholic School Week. What is Catholic School Week all about? Catholic School Week is a national celebration um, of Catholic schools, uh, and it takes place locally in our schools. And although there are many, many wonderful recommendations and suggestions on how to celebrate from the National Catholic Educational Association, it is done locally. And most of our schools begin with liturgy on a Sunday, if not another liturgy during the week. So we really begin by looking at our faith and what we believe in and why we exist, um, if you will, the mission of uh, Jesus Christ to educate. And so during the week, in addition to being open to visitors from uh, places, they may just want to see what the school is doing. They may be interested in registering their children in a Catholic school. But within the school, it's kind of like a spirit week where we celebrate all of the people who make up our Catholic schools and make them successful. So it might be the students one day having a dress down, the teachers may be honored, parents, um, the priests of the parish, the whole school community. So it's a great week. It's a fun week, but there's a message there that we do something that is very important in educating in the faith. So share with our listeners, um, is there anything coming up this week, like some one of the schools that's doing something maybe a little bit out of the ordinary that you're excited about, a little bit more creative than, than usual that kind of you're enthusiastic about? Well, you know, all of our schools uh, do something that reflects something special in their own community. Okay. But I would say there is more things in common than unique to the school. But many of our schools also use the week 
uh, one of the greatest things we do is sometimes they do fundraisers for organizations, their own parishes, uh, food pantry, or a cause of some type, you know, it be it be breast cancer or one of the schools I saw recently dressed in purple for cervical cancer. I might have the color wrong because that's right. all different colors, but yeah. they do fundraising, you know, charging a dollar and doing that. Most importantly, what I love that they do is they often buddy the younger grades with the older grades and do a project so that, you know, very often we can be isolated in a classroom. So kindergarten stays with itself, but then they have the opportunity to join with the eighth grade, for example, and do a reading project or some unique learning experience. That's really fun. Oh, that's great. Thank you for, for sharing that. Now let's, you know, we've spoken for a couple of minutes here and I can see you through Zoom. Our listeners hear your voice, but they don't see. Give our listeners a little bit of your background. You kind of um, have, you know, I think looking a little bit at your, your resume, you must have begun teaching when you were age five, did you? <laughs> if only that were true. If your listeners could see my white hair, they would know that's <laughs> not true. Uh, I started very traditionally out of college teaching in a Catholic elementary school in the Brooklyn Diocese. I, I'm, as I always say, I'm an import from uh, Brooklyn to the Archdiocese. And for a long time, I was a teacher and 25 years as a principal in the Brooklyn Diocese. But I also had the unique experience of teaching overseas in Rome for a Catholic school run by the Holy Cross Brothers. Um, ah. you, yes, the priests and brothers for three years. Let me ask you, let me, you know, we do, this is a conversation and I, yeah. I need to be interested in the conversation and I hope our listeners are too. Now, by any chance, did your time at the Notre Dame International School overlap with Brother Robert Fontaine? I came after him. He was okay. a legend. I heard a lot about him, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, do you know him? <laughs> I'm sorry yeah, I didn't get to really work. So after Brother Robert Fontaine came back, he wound up for a number of years heading one of our Catholic charities agencies, Pius the uh, Pius the Twelfth uh, School up in the counties and in New York. I think he, he he lived quite a long life. I think he passed away a couple of years ago. Mm, okay. He was a legend um, at the school, definitely. Yeah. Um, many, so, many important people there. Yeah. So let me let me ask you a question because I noticed you did have a little bit of a stint in New York City public schools for about five years. You you did you did that. And um and because your current job in the uh, superintendent's office in the Archdiocese of New York is a focus on Catholic identity. Am I right with that? Yes. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about your experience when you were teaching for those five years in a public school in New York City. Yes. Um, through, you know, sometimes God writes your path in crooked lines, right? So um, I had the opportunity because of um, a situation in the school I was teaching in, we had a union and uh, the union went on strike and all the teachers were fired. So I ended up thinking what was going to be a very temporary job. I took a temporary job in a public school 
in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I have to say for me, I had been raised obviously Catholic. I had attended Catholic elementary school, high school and Catholic university. So to suddenly be thrust in a public school, the only time I had ever been in a public school was kindergarten uh, myself. Uh, It was a very unique experience. And um, I taught in an intermediate school. I thought I was just going to work, you know, till the end of the year, till June. I ended up staying much longer, as you can see. Um, It was a low income area. At the time, Williamsburg has since resurrected itself and, and changed dramatically. But at the time, it was a low-income area. It was definitely, for me, a culture shock. But um, I worked with people of all faiths, my students, many of whom were Christian. Um, and I, it really opened my eyes. And I also saw the impact that the Catholic Church in the community made on the lives of these people. Many of them, I remember students leaving on a Wednesday to attend religious instruction, release time, which we had. Um, The public school students going to that, they would talk about the priests and the religious who were very active in the community. And as you will be happy to hear, uh, really involved in the needs of the people, not not only their spiritual needs, but because of their socioeconomic level, what needed to be done for them? How could the church help them? And so the children really were amazing. Uh, the people I worked with, for me, I learned a lot about other faiths. You know, I had a teacher across the hall from me who belonged to the Baha'i faith. I worked with many uh, Jewish teachers and we really had the opportunity to share. I remember teaching them, although my married name is Doherty and I'm not by birth Irish, we always celebrated St. Patrick's Day together and they they talked to us about um, their practices at the different holidays. And it was just amazing to experience that and to see how a different system works. I I found the experience very enriching. I also met my husband through the public school system because he worked in the district. Uh, He had a program to prevent students from dropping out. And uh, as a Catholic person, he felt very committed to not just teaching. He was what you would call an attendance teacher, which is literally a truant officer. You might remember them from the past. And he recognized the need to do some programs that would encourage the kids to stay in school and get their degrees. So, So, you know, interestingly, our work at Catholic Charities in New York, we found over the past decade is a lot more involved with public schools. Hmm. And so in some of the um, changes that the public schools have done, they've recognized that many of the kids in those schools would benefit academically from some support services. And in many cases, rather than providing them directly through the Board of Education, they work with other community organizations to do it. So in Washington Heights, in uh, Highbridge, in the Fordham area of the Bronx, 
two of our agencies are involved in some of those community schools in providing after-school supports, tutoring, recreational, working with parents. So we have, you know, we've we've had a lot of interaction with a fair number of the public schools in northern Manhattan and in, in the Bronx. In addition, uh, one of our agencies is in probably more than 30 or 40 public schools providing on-site mm. uh, mental health services for the kids. So, um, you know, what you just said, um, you know, there's more to a school than just, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, which I guarantee you is not what they call it these days. But right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but absolutely. These Those kinds of support services are essential for the success of not only the students in the school, but for the entire community. Yeah. And that's kind of, you're probably aware of the St. Philip Neary project, yep. which is trying to do that, you know, yep. to get things started on the Grand Concourse and supply the, the children and their families with all kinds of services that they may not you know, it, it can be daunting to try to figure out how yeah. do I access help for this yeah. or that? Yeah. You know, what am I eligible for? And and these kinds of community-based things are so essential. So let me let me ask you a question, and don't get mad at me for asking this because I'm sure <laughs> you've answered it somewhere between one and two million times. Um, our Catholic schools aren't Catholic anymore because there are no nuns teaching in them. So Aren't they no longer Catholic, right? Oh, that is like a million dollar question. Yeah, if I had a dollar for every time. <laughs> if you could see the dedicated teachers and principals and staff members that we have, and, and those listeners who are going to hear this, they are just amazing. You know, um, we do our best to offer a just wage for all of the personnel in our schools. And yes, we do not have vowed religious teaching there, but ministry and vocation uh, takes many forms. And we have many dedicated people in our schools. And even though, and it is a fact that many of our schools do not have 100% Catholic students, but we still teach the faith. And, you know, as a principal, many times when parents would come to register a child, they would say, you know, we're not Catholic. Does our child have to take religion class? And I would say to them all the time, even if we didn't have your child take a religion class, they would still be exposed to the faith because it encompasses and encircles everything we do. We begin our morning in prayer. We teach them more than just learning the facts about our faith. That is essential. They learn the prayers. They learn the beliefs. They learn about the saints. They learn scripture, but more than that, they learn what it means to be a Catholic, how, you know, we, we see be kind all the time. Well, the Catholics know what that is, because that is a major part of our faith. Love one another, the greatest commandment Jesus gave us. And so everything we do, it reflects what we believe. And again, we could not do it without not only the staff members, faculty members, but also the parents who engage completely and support 
the efforts of the school. So while we may look differently, not the buildings, because many of them still are the same for a long time, but what's within it is different. Um, what our purposes has not changed. We are still Catholic. So let me, because um, this is me, because I'm nosy and I'm sure. curious. I should know the answer to this. So <laughs> do we, do the non-Catholics also take the religion classes? Yes. Okay. And they, we do request that they participate in any right. prayer services, um, mass, but they are not forced to believe that. We just ask them to be respectful, right. you know, and to participate to the extent they're comfortable. Okay. And, and the parents know that when they register their children. So, you know, I'll share with you and our listeners um, actually, we're speaking with Sister Linda Doherty, who is the Associate Superintendent of Schools in the Archdiocese of New York, with a focus on Catholic identity. So, Linda, I'll share with you the fact that when we do orientation of the staff of Catholic Charities, yeah. um, we talk about our Catholic identity, and while we do not proselytize, and we do not, and we serve people of all religions, and we do not ask people to, um, to believe or to practice to get the services we do, we do say it's based upon our belief in the gospel and that motivates us and we give witness in that way. It is very intriguing to me that oftentimes in the orientation, we get the more vocal support for that from the non-Catholic staff. Mm -hmm. They really appreciate, and, and Tom Dobbins, who is was with us, he does part of that orientation. And I think he would back me up in saying that there is um, a, uh, a strong support from non-Catholics for our Catholic identity. Tom, would you confirm that? Absolutely, Monsignor. You know, I mean, and it's both um, other, other Christians who are usually better versed in you know, biblical quotes than our, our Catholic brethren sometimes are. And then also uh, uh, people, you know, our, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Muslim brothers and sisters, and people of other faiths or people of no faith. They often have a lot of questions, and I, they really do appreciate us introducing them to the why Catholic Charities does what it does. Uh, I would say that that is very true, especially in terms of parents who come to register their students to our schools. They say... We may be of a different faith, but we love the faith and values that are promulgated here. And that's, and I must put in a little plug and say that we do an excellent job in terms of all the secular subjects too. Our students outperform anything going on um, in, you know, especially in the low income areas, they outperform our other schools in terms of the major subjects, as you said, reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> so, but again, people really embrace what our mission is and what we're all about. We yeah. want to teach people how, not only as many times, I'm sure you've heard others say this, not just to get everybody, you know, a diploma and get them into a good high school or college, but to get them to heaven and to create, as I always say, the kingdom here on earth. What can we do? And the many opportunities our kids have to be of service, 
even in the poorest areas, they serve others. Mm. It's just so impressive and uplifting to see that. So Linda, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask the, the following question, and let me preface it this way. We know that there are tremendous financial challenges that our Catholic schools face, that there's competition from others. But the question I want to ask you is, what are the challenges that you face in the Catholic identity front? What are the challenges in maintaining that, growing that? What challenges are you facing? Well, you kind of verbalized it before when you asked about religious sisters and brothers teaching mm -hmm. in our schools that they're no longer teaching. So our staffs, for the most part, are completely lay people. Right. And as we employ younger people, they themselves may not have had a strong religious education. Many times our teachers come to us and if they didn't attend a Catholic high school or college, their religious ed may have ended in, you know, grade school. So we ask our teachers it, it's uh, to take catechist courses, right? So they are, become certified. They have four courses to take to give them the basic faith. But some of them, you know, really themselves, they could be people of faith, but they don't have the breadth and depth of knowledge that religious normally were trained in, you know. Uh, so that is one of the challenges. And we look at how can we continue to give them development um, in that area. I think also one of the other challenges we have is that with fewer clergy, it's harder for priests to get to our schools and be visible. Yes, we bring the children over to mass. And yes, we try to give them as many prayer experiences as possible. But often, you know, when I was growing up, way back when, the priest yeah. came, every class was visited by one of the priests at least once a week. Right. They might have been in the schoolyard. Given that sometimes there's only one priest in a parish now, it's just too much to ask of them. So we have been able to, some of the seminarians visit our schools. Yeah. That's been one help. Sometimes there are deacons who will come. Um, that connection is sometimes more challenging to make, but that also is essential to Catholic identity. We need to see, you know, our ordained priests in our schools. And again, it's not their fault they can't come. They just have so much to do that their time can be limited. But we're so grateful to those who give that time and really uh, are committed to Catholic education. So, you know, we... The biggest thing is giving our people the experience of the faith, whether it be the teachers, the staff members, or the students and their families. You know, they uh, we know that people aren't going to church in the same way that uh, we used to see. Not everybody sees going to Sunday Mass as essential to their faith practice. And so we need you know, to see how we can address that and encourage our families to come. And most schools and parishes do that by having family masses on the weekends or something to invite yeah. them. That is certainly a challenge that we see. Yeah, I, I thank you for mentioning that. And, you know, when I was a number of years ago, 
when I was in a parish uh, up in Washington Heights, St. Elizabeth, that was one of the things that that we found pretty successful, you know, what we called the family mass. Yes. That, that was good. And and again, you, you pointed out this has no um, this is no specificity to mm -hmm. Catholic schools. But if you look at things, it's probably only about 25 percent of Catholics throughout the whole country who regularly are at Sunday mass. And so it's a it is a challenge. And we all read those things about how there are people who consider themselves spiritual, but not mm -hmm. religious, et cetera. And, you know, our schools are in that environment and, and they kind of have to deal with it in, in a variety of ways. So, uh, yes. Linda, you have been so generous, but before I let you, um, let you go, is there one, one or two final things you'd like to make sure that our listeners are aware of and that they're kind of keep keeping their mind regarding our Catholic schools? Well, I, I want to say that we are still producing a great product. And, you know, the, despite the many challenges, financial and otherwise, that we discussed today, we still do a great job. And I don't take credit for it. It's because of the good work and the dedication of all involved in our Catholic schools. And that includes the staff here in the education department. Right. And secondly, I would love to ask all of the listeners to pray for our schools. Pray that we can keep it going. You know, we have a legacy of fantastic things in the past. People we produced, you know, um, and what they're doing today in society today. So we want to keep that going. Great. Thank you so much. Linda Doherty, the Associate Superintendent for Catholic Identity in the Archdiocese of New York. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. And I hope Catholic School Week is a tremendous success this year. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to share my thoughts. Great. Tom, I think we'll take a break. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, we talk about the big issues in the world. Uh, we spoke about Catholic education just in our last uh, segment. And we talk about, you know, broad things, systems, policies, programs, etc. But we always want to remember that in the midst of a good focus on those, there's also a need to kind of be a little bit self-reflective and to ask the question, what is my commitment to making the world more just and more compassionate? Am I doing what I can do? And one of the simple ways we say this, um, do I focus on loving God? Uh, do I focus on loving others? Do I focus on loving myself? And, you know, even if we may not be able to solve the big problems, which we can't all by ourselves, and even our work on the big problems is going to make limited 
progress, we can focus on what we do ourselves and we can bring more love for others. We can bring more love for God and we can bring more love for ourselves. And if we all did that communally and collectively and in an aggregate, the world would be significantly more just and it would be more compassionate. So that's what we kind of always try to remember that when we're talking about that from the perspective of policies and programs and teaching and values. We can't eliminate our own personal role in making the world a better place. Tom, what was your experience of going to Catholic school? Positive, oh, negative? Mine was very, very positive, Monsieur. I mean, you know, we went, I went from a very large uh, classroom and large class that I was part of in, in Riverdale, which was like 40 kids. It was huge. Yeah. And then when I went to Westchester, I was a small class. It was only about 12 kids. Um, but all throughout, I have to say, I, I thought it was extremely positive. I always had very supportive teachers. Uh, like uh, Linda said, you know, uh, the, the priests were very involved in our classroom. We would always wind up seeing them. I had actually religious sisters not teaching me, but they were principals of the school at the time. So mm -hmm. I, I was part of that last cadre, I think, that had you know, the presence of the nuns in the schools. But uh, but I have to say, I, I'm very grateful. I, I, you know, I think, and I liked the way that the Catholic values sort of inculcated the entire classroom. Okay. So, uh, so Tom, what grade was it that you made the transition from the big school in the Bronx to the smaller school in Westchester? Sixth grade. Okay. Yeah, sixth yeah. grade. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so when I went to school, which was, you know, before you did, um, we did have sisters, but we also had lay people. So it was kind of a mix of both lay people and sisters uh, who who taught in the school that I was in, in, in Yonkers. And I found it to be a very, very good experience. I know there are some of these, quote unquote, horror tales, I call them, of, of how the sisters were really rough and frightening and all of those type of things. I didn't experience that. I mean, yes, there was discipline. And yes, you did not want to misbehave. But I didn't find any of those kind of horror stories that, you know, sometimes I think, from my perspective, may be quite exaggerated in the people telling them 30, 40, 50 years after they are telling them. But that just was not my experience. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So why don't we go to our next guest, Actually, Monsieur, we just uh, we just lost uh, okay. Greg. Yeah, right. so I'm we're trying to get him back now, Monsieur. So. All right, so um, you know we will. So we're going to be speaking with Greg Colburn, who is associate professor at the University of Washington, and we're going to speak about housing and and homelessness. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because I think a number of cities, I uh, New York being one I know best, is around this time of the year, what the city does is try to get a handle on how many people don't have a home and are actually out in the streets. Because there are a number of people who don't have a permanent home who are uh, living in shelters. At least they have a roof over their head, not the ideal place for them to be. But they do have a roof over their heads. And but there are also, at least in New York City, 
there are thousands who are on the street who do not go into the shelters. And so I'm delighted that we're going to be speaking with Professor Greg Colburn, who is at the University of, of Washington, and uh, about the issue about housing and home and homelessness. Professor Colburn, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Thank you for having me. Great. So now you've actually written a, a book on how homelessness is a housing problem. Um, would you tell us a little bit about that? How what what's that kind of intriguing title mean? Well, the motivation for the book was I moved uh, to Seattle in 2017 when I, when I began my work uh, at the University of Washington. And I got involved in a lot of community conversations around the topic of housing and, you know, the housing crisis that we have here, and, and in particular, the homelessness crisis, which in Seattle is, is just terrible. And my observation was that as a community, we didn't really understand what was driving the crisis. And so in the popular press and then just in among policymakers or just in social circles, as people talk about homelessness, there were all these competing narratives about what was driving the crisis. And so um, I was familiar with the academic literature on homelessness and was, was quite certain that the driver of the crisis in Seattle was largely a function of lack of access to housing. And that's why Seattle has five times the homelessness of Chicago. It's because our housing market. Now, these other factors, addiction, mental illness, poverty, all those play an important role. But fundamentally, the crisis in our coastal cities right now is being driven by a lack of affordable housing. Ah, and so to give our listeners just a little bit of sense, how big is the um, the homeless population in Seattle? Oh, we're about um, in a, we count it at the county level. So King County, we're at about 15,000 people. Uh, experiencing homelessness uh, and on any given night, which is large, which is we all understand an undercount. And so that number is probably 20, 30 or 40,000 if we had a, a more accurate measure. Do um, when when the county considers um, homelessness, do they they include people who are actually in some type of temporary shelter in addition to the people who are on the street? Yeah, the Official definition of homelessness per the federal government is people who are living in shelter or transitional housing facilities, as well as people who are residing in locations that are, uh, quote, unfit for human habitations. That would include on the street, if you're living in your car, if you're in an RV, um, that would all be part of the, the official definition of homelessness. What's not included is if I run into a tough time and I'm sleeping on your couch because you're being kind to me, that is not considered homeless um, in the United States. It is in other countries. Uh, it's a broader definition, but that's not included in the United States. So we call that shadow homelessness. It's not in the official numbers, but there are a lot of people who are couch surfing or, or in doubled up situations. Right. Is there any estimate um, in, in of those 15,000, how many would be in transitional shelters and how many would be on the street or in a car? Any estimate of that? Yeah, in West Coast cities, unlike East Coast cities, um, we have a much higher uh, unsheltered homeless count uh, because our shelter system is not as robust. And so it let's say it's 50 or 60 percent of the people experiencing homelessness in Seattle, San Francisco and L.A. are unsheltered, whereas in New York City, it's it's about 95 percent are sheltered. Yeah, I think um, just last week they did the hope count in New York City. Yep. The numbers won't be out until the summer or so, but. If you look at last year, I think last year 
there were, they counted somewheres around 4,000, a little bit over 4,000 that were unsheltered. And probably I think last year, the number was 60 or 70,000 that were actually in shelters. So as you said, it's, you know, it's under 10% that are, you know, uh, that are not, not sheltered. Um, One of the things that I think sometimes people talk about is that there is a difference between kind of individual adults who may be unsheltered and family who are there. What, what's your research indicated about any of the differences among those two uh, groups of, of individuals? Well, I think there's there's um, a couple differences. One in terms of what dro- what might drive someone into homelessness, and then certainly what our responses are. Um, you know, the the single adult population tends to have higher levels of chronic homelessness, which is people who've been homeless for longer periods of time, and and folks who are dealing with more severe behavioral health disorders. Um, a lot of families experiencing homelessness have fallen on on tough luck, and um, and are struggling to to make the ends meet. Now, there's chronic homelessness and among families. There's behavioral health um, disorders there as well. Um, just as there are a lot of you know in Seattle, over half of our uh, homeless population, many of whom are single adults, are employed. Uh, they just don't have enough money to to afford housing. But there are some differences. And then I think the important, um, the real important difference is the response in the sense that families need particular care because of the really negative impacts on kids. And the research on, on the negative impacts on kids are, are is, is pretty staggering uh, and sobering. And uh, and so we have, you know, family-specific shelters. And so we don't want to put families in, in a shelter with a bunch of um, a single adult men. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there are definitely differences. And we see interventions and research focusing on a particular subcategory, like, like adults or families or children. We're speaking with Professor Greg Colburn. University of Washington in the Rumstead Department of Real Estate. And we're speaking about homelessness and, and housing. Um, you say in the book, the title is um, How Structural Factors Explain What's Going On in the United States. So from a structural or policy perspective, what does your research kind of lead you to recommend or suggest are some of the structural policy changes that we need to do if we want to have less homeless people in the United States? Well, there's a couple structures that are are super important here. Clearly, we have a structural poverty problem in the United States that we need to think about. How are we going to make sure that people can make more money? We have a structural racism problem in the United States. People of color are grossly uh, overrepresented in the in the population of people experiencing homelessness. And then the structural issue that we really highlight in this book uh, most most prominently is the structural deficit of housing. And there, there are all sorts of research and estimates out there about how many housing units were short in the United States, but it's millions of units. And there are a host of reasons of why that is the case, uh, but the consequences are very, very severe. And the consequences are unaffordable housing in many of our coastal cities. And it's not just for people experiencing homelessness. Third grade teachers struggle to be able to live in San Francisco and Seattle and New York and Boston, firefighters, police officers, et cetera. Um, and, and so what we ultimately need to do from a housing policy standpoint is we need to create an environment in which more housing can be built. Ideally, it will be denser housing in the urban core uh, so that people are not commuting an hour uh, to get to, to work or their place of employment. Um, and then we also need to create 
uh, more affordable housing. And there will be people and not an insignificant number of people who will not be able to afford market rate housing in the United States, uh, given its current costs. And so we need subsidies for individuals or we need to subsidize the production of housing such that people can access that housing. Without doing that, this problem will continue to grow, I fear. So in, and I don't know if, if there's been any work or research or how far the research goes, but you, you point out there's a housing deficit. Um, any estimates about how big that deficit is? Yeah, it's either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, one of the, one of the, um, quasi governmental entities yeah. that, that deals in the mortgage market. I I think I was looking at the research last week. It was like 3.8 million units in the United States. Okay. A huge, and huge deficit. So it's a huge deficit. So again, simplistically, I'm going to ask a simplistic question. So is the problem just money? Well, I think it's pro it's it's money, but it's also um, the United States has an obsession with detached single family homes. And in many of our cities, New York being the outlier, the vast majority of residential parcels are zoned for single family housing, which right. means it's illegal to build anything other than a single family home. Right. My city in Seattle, it's between 70 and 75% of parcels are zoned single family. So it's not simply a money issue. It is a, we have to restructure our built environment in our growing big cities to ensure that there are more people can live there. And that cannot happen if three quarters of parcels are zoned single family. So that's mm -hmm. a regulatory lever we can pull. And then there's obviously a money lever that we need to pull in terms of thinking about affordability. Right. And and I, I suspect um, the, I mean, this is just kind of a little bit of probably simplistic common sense. Some of those zoning rules are basically class issues because people don't want people who can't afford a single house in their neighborhood. They, they want to keep the neighborhood a little bit homogeneous in terms of least class, uh, if not other factors. No doubt. And we frequently call that type of zoning exclusionary zoning for that very right. reason in terms of it excludes certain people of, of different races, classes, et cetera. Um, and that is prevalent whenever you go to a zoning meeting where they're talking about building multifamily housing, people will say, well, we don't want those people in our neighborhood. And those people might be poor people, people of color, et cetera. Um, so, um, so Professor Coburn, you've been very, very good and generous with your time. Is there a couple of things you would like to make sure that our listeners understand about the homeless and the housing that we haven't touched on yet. Any made main points you think our listeners should be aware of? Well, I think um, one point that's really important and one of the motivations for writing this book is, is uh, many times our perceptions of homelessness are shaped by our personal experiences. And so we walk down the street and we see a gentleman sitting on the street and there's a needle next to him. And we say, well, of course, this is a drug problem because I just saw Joe on the street and Joe is, was, is addicted and there was a needle next to him. And those experiences are powerful uh, because they might elicit emotions like fear or guilt or shame or, or some of these powerful things which might trump logic. And what's important for people to understand, I think, is the idea that certainly if you're addicted, you're more likely to experience homelessness. But we also know that addiction and mental health are consequences of experiencing homelessness. It's a natural human reaction to being left on the street, being exposed to abuse, not eating, not sleeping, not getting medical care. And so the fact that people would then medicate or that people would develop mental illness as a result of that traumatic experience 
should not surprise anyone. And so what we need to do is take a step up and not blame individuals for being on the street because of quote, bad decisions they've made. What we need to do is look in the mirror as a society and say, we have created the conditions that has produced this outcome. And Joe on the street is the unfortunate, um, you know, uh, is an unfortunate outcome of, of the decisions that we have collectively made. And so if we continue to blame Joe, which absolves us of some sense of responsibility, it gives us a free pass. And that's what's, I think, really, really important that we all need to look in the mirror and say, what can we do better? Because in my opinion, this crisis is one, solvable and two, unacceptable in a, in a country with the resources that we have. Okay. Professor Greg Colburn, Associate Professor in the Rumsted Department of Real Estate, University of Washington. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. And even more importantly, thank you for the research that you've done. And thank you for educating me more than I was and educating our listeners. Thanks so much for the work you do. Thanks for having me. Great. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. I'm delighted with the two guests that we had today. We learned a little bit more about Catholic education and how we need to celebrate Catholic uh, education as Catholic School Week is coming up and the maintenance of Catholic identity. Our Catholic schools, in terms of the student body, are not completely Catholic, but many people come to them because of both the educational value, the educational um, success of them and also the value bases and the beliefs that are a part of our Catholic education. So I'm delighted that we were able to share that with our listeners today. And I'm also glad that we were able to kind of learn a little bit more about housing and, and homelessness from Professor Colburn. And I think, uh, you know, he provided us with a, um, a very, very, good overview of the situation in a very understandable way that, you know, one of the main reasons that we have people who are in shelters, people who are on the street, is because we don't have enough affordable housing units. And some estimates indicate that it's close to 4 million units that we need to build across this country in order to deal with the population that needs help in getting into housing. So. Thank you for being with us on Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 